There are always a number of popular sayings that sound like they come from the Bible, but they don't. They use biblical language, but cannot be found anywhere in Scripture. And one of these is, when God closes a door, he opens a window. And I think this is a way of trying to help us feel better about missed opportunities in life. Like, if we don't get what we want one way, there still could be another way to get it. But you won't find this in 2 Peter or Obadiah or Mark or any other book of the Bible. You know where you'll find it? The sound of music. Like, that's where it's from. Now, the Bible does talk about God opening and shutting doors for his people. That he does sometimes direct our paths by opening or closing options and opportunities in life. But when God shuts a door, he shuts it. Not so he can climb through a window, but so he can direct us to something else. Also, when the Bible talks about doors opening or shutting, it's not just talking about our opportunities or our guidance or our direction. Really, there's an underlying emphasis. Everywhere in Scripture you see this on the sovereign power and wisdom of God, that he has power and control over life, even when life is hard and we are weak and dangers lurk everywhere. He is sovereign. When we consider who God is, and really that should always be our starting place. When we consider who God is, his opening and shutting doors should be greatly encouraging to us. And there is a door that stands open right now that we need to talk about today. So, if you have a, a Bible with you, let's turn together, or you can turn, find one on your phone Physical or virtual, doesn't matter. They still have the same words. We'll turn to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3. It's been a month since we've been in Revelation, so let me quickly refresh you on where we're at here in chapter 3. Back in chapter 1, it really set the scene for the whole first section of the book with the Apostle John receiving a, a powerful vision of Jesus as the exalted Son of Man. The one who has been unveiled to us, is being unveiled to us, and will yet be unveiled to us. And with just vivid imagery, John described Jesus as he is right now, even today. Now, since it's been a while, I actually want to read part of chapter 1 together. So in chapter 1, starting in verse 12, you can follow along with me. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. 
I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are, and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Right there at the end in verse 19, we see John's charge to write letters from Jesus to seven key first century churches, which I believe were meant to be representative messages for all churches of all time, including our own. Today brings us to the sixth of the seven letters. This one written to the church in Philadelphia. Now, this is not the Philadelphia that's several hours south in Pennsylvania where the Flyers and the Eagles play. This is the original Philadelphia, the ancient city in Asia Minor, a city that was ideal for trade and for military routes, and especially known for its rich agriculture. But the reason that their agriculture thrived, especially thrived, was also their biggest problem. See, the soil was volcanic. They were situated near several active volcanoes, which also meant frequent earthquakes, some of which were devastating. It was said that the walls of the city of Philadelphia were constantly being cracked, and people always lived very wary of the next quake. Over the years, Rome, whenever there was an earthquake, Rome had often sent aid to them and given them special privileges for their situation. And in return, Philadelphia played a key role in popularizing emperor worship in the area. But there was another kind of worship present in Philadelphia, worship of our Lord. There was a church there, a gospel outpost, which helped to popularize another king. And it's to this church that the king of all spoke this word. Look at verse 7 in chapter 3. It says this, Jesus is speaking, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, unlike the other letters, this description has very little in common with chapter 1. It expands the picture for us. It tells us more of the revelation of who Jesus is. So first it says he is the Holy One. Now, God, or Yahweh, is often called the Holy One in Scripture. One. The Holy One, the Holy, Holy, Holy. There is no other. And Jesus shares this divine title, defining holiness. He, he's set apart from the evil and of this world, and he's holy other than us. Second, it says he is the true one. So he defines truth as well. He is the way, the truth, and the life. All truth comes from him. He speaks what is true. And if he is true, it means he is trustworthy, reliable, genuine, and faithful. We can count on him. Next, he not only holds the keys of death and Hades, but also the key of David, it says here. What does that mean? 
Well, that picture comes directly from Isaiah 22. In Isaiah 22, Isaiah the prophet's talking to officials in King Hezekiah's courts, and he said that one wicked official in the courts had to go. Shebna was his name. He, he was so wicked, they had to get rid of him, and the Lord demanded that another official, Eliakim, take his place. God then says this about Eliakim. He says, I will clothe him with your robe, and will bind your sash on him, and will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. See, that whole last picture is picked up on here in Revelation 3. Except that we see the deeper meaning goes way beyond just Eliakim, doesn't it? This pointed ahead to Jesus, greater rule over a greater kingdom. The key of David was the key, it says, of the house of David, or it was access to the king and his palace. To be more specific, one scholar says this makes Jesus the Davidic Messiah with absolute power to control entrance to the heavenly kingdom. So, see, with Jesus, the earthly throne of David became a heavenly, eternal throne. And Christ not only sits on the throne, he also controls access to it. He opens or, or locks the door. He alone holds the key. And we must go through him to enter the kingdom. It makes sense, right? That in John 10, Jesus says that he himself was the door to the kingdom, saying, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So you're starting to grasp the enormity of Jesus' claims here. He is God, the holy and true one, and he is the only way to God. And notice again his power. It says, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Like if he opens a door, ain't nobody can close it. If he shuts a door, ain't nobody can open it. Jesus controls our destinies. Listen, you are not getting into God's kingdom by any other means than Jesus Christ. Don't imagine that you'll make your own way or you'll find some other way around or you'll earn your own way there. But also notice, if Jesus opens the door to you, nobody can prevent you from going through it. And I believe if you are alive and breathing right now, the door is not shut on you yet. Because God's word is clear that the death of Christ was good enough to save you as the blood of Christ is power enough to cover, cover over any sin that you ever commit. And the resurrection of Christ is still bringing spiritually dead people back to life. Jesus has made the way to heaven, an open door for us right now. It won't stay open forever, but you can walk through it today. 
So I hope that you would see your need for Jesus to save you, to save you from sin and death and hell, and to save you to holiness and life and heaven. I hope you put your trust in him to do that. Commit your life to following him. We'd love to help you out there. You can talk to us after we'd love to. But now this scene is set. This powerful king in Christ is speaking. Let's get to the message Jesus had for Philadelphia. It says, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. These are his words, and really that's the overarching point, is that Christ is speaking this to his church. And in the case of Philadelphia, it's actually quite the positive message that he's going to give them. There's no critique in it. There's no call to repentance. There's no, but I have this against you. So what can we learn from a church that Jesus openly affirmed in their faith, like they're doing everything right? Here's the first thing. That Christ speaks to commend his church for faithful endurance in spite of weakness. Christ commends his church whenever we faithfully endure in spite of weakness that we have. Look what he says, verse 8. He says, I know your works. Like, I know all the things you do. I see what you've done. That could be scary. But as we'll see, Philadelphia was doing well. So this was more like a child being affirmed by their parent. Like, I saw what you did there. Great job. Keep it up. And the next word is a very key word in this passage, and really in Revelation as a whole. It says, Behold, I know your works. Behold, the message paraphrases, I see what you've done. Now see what I've done. What did Jesus want them to see? Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. There's not a consensus on what this door opened up to, whether it refers to salvation and heaven or to an opportunity for the gospel to advance. Given the context, I think this has to be a door to salvation and heaven, a door that all believers will walk through one day. But at the same time, it very well could refer to an opportunity for the gospel as well. Since anyone hearing this message, like think about it, they could still accept Christ as their Lord. And believers are called to reach out and invite others to join us on this path. So that it's like the same door. The kingdom is an open door that, believe, that unbelievers could walk through and the believers will walk through. That no one would shut this door though would have been especially meaningful for the Philadelphians. Daryl Johnson explains that many of the believers in Philadelphia were Jews who had, because of their faith in Jesus, had the door of the synagogue shut in their faces. They had been excommunicated, cursed, persecuted, disowned by family and community. Jesus was saying to them, the door to the synagogue may be shut, but I have opened for you another door. The door to the only synagogue that finally matters, the door to the temple of God and the city of God, I have opened the door into the very life of God. Fact was that the Christians in Philadelphia had very little power 
or stature or influence. They were an insignificant minority, ignored and marginalized, outnumbered. Something that I believe increasingly describes us, right? Look at what Jesus says. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. So in the midst of weakness, the Philadelphians had faithfully endured. Notice, it wasn't wrong for them to be weak. Like it's right in the midst of it that Jesus commends them. They were not powerful. But God's power had been made perfect in their weakness. And they were thus able to resist the opposition that arose against their faith. Some of you have already had to faithfully endure stuff for Jesus despite your weakness. And things may indeed get worse for all of us, even in North America. If we are to have the strength to remain faithful, we need to lean into our powerlessness and learn what it means to rely on his power and strength. This meant a lot to me personally this week. As the last several months have really taken a toll on me, as I'm sure many, many of you can relate to. I, I feel significantly weaker and more tired, less powerful, you could say, than I did six months ago. But this text gives me the encouragement that God's work isn't dependent on my power. It's not dependent on my strength. That I can faithfully endure even when I am weak. I don't need to give up. And it spurs me on to keep going, to keep pressing on, no matter the circumstances. And I hope it can do the same for you. No matter what comes down the road for us, above all else, we must remain faithful to our Lord. Thank God that our obedience and perseverance doesn't depend on our power, but on His. And notice, it wasn't just in the midst of weakness that he commended them. It's in the midst of weakness that he opened a door for them. He set before this open door, and this should encourage us, wherever we are, that we can look forward to that, to the day when we walk through that door into glory, and it also should encourage us to pay attention to the opportunities that he gives us today. And even in this season of cultural lockdown, when Doors in our lives have shut in many ways. People are hurting intensely. People are searching for meaning like crazy. So what opportunities do we have here and now to, to show Christ's open door to others? Just as a couple examples, everyone's online these days. What opportunity do we have online? What are we given there to speak up for Christ? 
We see our next-door neighbors more often than ever. Is there an open door there? We might not see as many people as usual or stand as close to them, but people still need Jesus. One author said that he starts every day by praying this prayer. Lord, please give me opportunities today to show your love in word and deed. Word and deed. Listen, that's a prayer that God loves to answer. To give, him, to give us opportunities to show his love. I read a story this week about a young man in Saskatchewan, an attorney, an avid athlete, young father. He's run 30 marathons and numerous Ironman triathlons. But when he saw this pandemic developing a few months ago, he decided to get in the best shape of his life, thinking that the best way to fight a disease is to be the most healthy you can be. The best shape of his life is probably like, I don't know, the worst shape of his life is better than most of us. But, <laughs> but what he did is in recent months, he'd spend up to 14 hours a day training. And then... He came down with COVID-19 anyway, and it hit him hard. The story said that he felt betrayed by the odds that said he wouldn't get it, and if he did, it would be mild. Since his case has been more severe, he said he, had been, he has been grappling with his own mortality. He said it really creates this huge mental disaster and that he's been left contemplating questions on whether he is a good person and a good father. He said, there are cases of young people that die from it, and that could be me. And then catch this, there's nothing I can do to control it. These are our neighbors and our family members, and our friends grappling with their frailty and their mortality and their lack of control, and interestingly, their morality. Like, what an open door. So in the midst of our own weakness, may we show them the open door. As Johnson says, we have little power. But as was the case in Philadelphia, the obstacles and little power finally do not matter, for Jesus is moving in our cities, and he has the keys. It wasn't just weakness that the Philadelphian church was enduring, however. You may have already sensed that they faced actual dangers, and they did. And I believe that part of Christ's motive in this letter was to encourage them here, because part of what was coming for them was deliverance and vindication. See, Christ speaks commend his church for faithful endurance, not just in the midst of weakness, but also in the midst of dangers. Christ speaks commend to encourage his church for endurance in the midst of dangers. Over verse 9 to 11, we can see a number of different threats that the church in Philadelphia faced. But Jesus has an encouragement for each one of these situations, okay? Verse 9, starting, it talks about danger from enemies. It says, behold, again, look what's coming. Behold, 
I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and not, are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. So similar, this is similar to the situation in Smyrna, if you recall. The church's fiercest opponents weren't Romans, but Jews, who out of insecurity and self-preservation stirred up local authorities against the church. See, the, the Jews feared that Christians' opposition to emperor worship, mandatory emperor worship, would jeopardize their own special exemption that they had. So they slandered and lied about believers to get them in trouble with the law. But here, the true one comes along and exposes their lies. Really exposes their true identity. They claimed to be Jewish, God's chosen people, but he says they weren't, at least not in the heart. Right? These Jews in Philadelphia, by opposing Christ, were actually doing the work of Satan. And that work legitimately hurt many of the believers in the church there. But Jesus promised that that wouldn't last. Ultimately, the tables would be turned. It says, Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now that's interesting. What would they learn and be forced to acknowledge? That Christians were right? That the church was better than them? No. Jesus says the church's enemies will learn that God loves us. Like his vindication, his deliverance of us will prove his love for us once more. And isn't it fitting that in Philadelphia, the city of brotherly philos, love, God would go out of his way to demonstrate his love for his people. Hey, believer, listen, if, if you feel beat down today by enemies, real or imagined, physical or spiritual, hear this. The Holy One, the True One, the Sovereign Messiah and King loves you and is on your side. Hey, what, can, what better news could there be than that? Any earthly opponents we will have do not and will not have the final authority. He will. Verse 10 now. It says, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. So Jesus says there's this dangerous season of trials coming up, but that he would keep them and protect them from it. Now, this is speaking here more than just danger from trials. Because if they were saved from all trials, there wouldn't be a need for endurance, would there? No, this is more danger from judgment. They would be spared from God's judgment. Most scholars believe that the hour of trial here refers to a time of tribulation on earth which will take place before Christ's second coming. The details of that are very debated. But 
Revelation seems very clear that there is a future time of trial and judgment that is coming for the world. It will be relatively brief, yet incredibly intense. It will be worldwide in scope. It says here that it will try people. It will expose people for what they really are. But it appears that God's wrath will be focused on unbelievers. God's people, meanwhile, will be delivered either out of or through the tribulation. We may not be fully protected from the wrath of Satan or the wrath of other men now, but all true believers will be protected from the wrath of God forever by his grace. Finally, Verse 11 turns our attention back to the present, to an ever-present danger to our souls. It says, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. We are at risk of having our crown taken away. And it's very doubtful that the crown here refers to our salvation. It's much more likely the case that, as Danny Aiken explains, loss of salvation is nowhere in view, for that can never be taken. But Satan or evil men could rob them of future reward if they get their eyes off Jesus or if they yield to temptation to deny his name or disobey his word. Did you know you're in danger of this even today? Right now. So... What's taking your eyes off Jesus these days? What's distracting you from things of true significance? What's tempting you towards compromise? These are real dangers to your soul's health and your eternal reward. They can seize your crown. So, how should we endure these dangers? By getting your eyes back on Jesus. See that? It says, I'm coming soon. I'm coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. He's coming soon. He's on his way. And that should inspire us to hold fast. We lose sight of that. That's when we get distracted. Looking at these verses, I'd encourage you to, to think through, to seriously think through where you, may, you are in danger today, where you may be oppressed by others, where you may be suffering from trials, where you may be distracted or tempted, and then to take courage and hope in God's promises to his people here. Like We can endure because of Christ. He's all through this. Like, what is the hope? If you just look through this, what is the hope in the midst of dangers from enemies? It's Christ's vindication. I will do this for you. The hope in danger from trials and tribulations. Christ's protection. And the hope in the danger to our souls. Christ's return. It's all because of him all depends on him. 
Those are some of the whopping seven promises to this church, by far, by far more than any of the other letters in Revelation. But like all the other letters, Jesus wraps up with a promise about eternity, which doubles as a challenge to the church to persevere and conquer. Look in verse 12. It says, The one who conquers... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. There are five amazing promises in that verse alone. It's not easy to summarize. But here's my best attempt, just to, to boil it down to the main point for us to take away. Christ speak to challenge his church with the promise of eternal security and honor. Christ challenges us with the promise of eternal security and honor. Jesus is like, you may be weak now, but one day you'll never be weak again. You'll be secure, you won't be in danger, and you'll be glorious. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. We're like, well, why would we want to be a pillar? Seems like a strange reward. Well, this is symbolic, not literal. And the main idea is permanence and stability and security. And consider the, the huge pillars in ancient architecture that many are still standing strong today. Or if we are a pillar in God's heavenly temple, it means we have a permanent place there. And in the very presence of God, no less, in his temple, Jesus unlocked that door for us into a city rocked by earthquakes, a church rocked by persecution. This was quite the promise. And it meant that they could be placed in a position of absolute eternal Security in God's presence. Like nothing will be able to take them away. Nothing will be able to take us away to separate us from Jesus. So that's why we should want to be a pillar. He continues to emphasize our security by saying next that I will, or never shall he go out of it. Never shall he go out of it. Christ opens and shuts doors. In this case, shutting the door is a really good thing. No one else. Not even the devil will ever pry it open to take us out. We won't have to leave. We'll never want to leave. We'll never be forced to leave. I think again of the perilous living situation in Philadelphia. Every time an earthquake struck, the people would flee the city, returning only once the aftershocks died down. They were going out and coming back fleeing and returning over and over. Many people actually just abandoned urban life altogether, living in the city altogether. Just that it, the risk wasn't worth it. It was safer farming out in the countryside. But life won't be like that in God's eternal kingdom. It'll be unshakable. And they never need to leave. They never be dislodged, never be in danger again. The same goes for us. We conquer. Never shall he go out of it. 
what Jesus says goes. What Jesus gives lasts. The next promise is really three promises in one, of honor by association. It says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Have you ever tried to get a, a famous person to sign their autograph on something? Maybe a, an author signing his book or a, to get a musician to sign a poster or an athlete to sign a ball? We feel honored just to have their attention for a minute, to get a little piece of their identity inscribed on something. And we feel pride to be associated with them in some tiny way. It's almost like Christ is saying, he will autograph us. He'll write on us the name of God. But this is more than just giving us attention, giving us a gift. This is God claiming us and displaying us as his own for all eternity. Like his identity is going to be stamped on us. We'll be permanently associated with him. Whether this is literal or not, this is an immense honor bestowed on us by Jesus. We'll also have the name of the city of God on us. So we'll be permanent residents, citizens of that city. I will not be Matthew Rudd of Ottawa. I'll be Matthew Rudd of New Jerusalem. We have passport. The emblem on the front is going to be the New Jerusalem. Again, reiterating that Followers of Jesus are the new chosen people of God dwelling in the new Zion. And think of how comforting this again would be for people in unstable Philadelphia to know that they could be citizens of an eternal city, a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Finally, Jesus says he'll write his own new name on the conquerors. You may think, well, Jesus has a new name? What is it? He doesn't say. But don't get distracted by what we don't know. Focus on what we do. As one scholar says, the most amazing thing is not the meaning of the new name, but the fact that we will share it. That's amazing. To share in Jesus' name and his identity. The Philadelphian believers, it said, had remained faithful by not, never denying Jesus' name. And now they would get Jesus' name etched into their own eternal identity. Danny Aiken concludes, the names here, the three names, signify identification, character, ownership, and recognition. The names signify who my God is, where my home is, and who my Lord is. I belong to the Father, heaven is my home, and Jesus is my Lord. I bear the signature of my God. Can you describe yourself in this way? Believe it. Like If you are Christ, this is your destiny. Absolute security and honor and glory in Christ. David Platt says, 
this we remember is the great reward of the gospel. God himself, when we risk our lives to run after Christ, we discover the safety that is found only in his sovereignty, the security that is found only in his love, and the satisfaction that is found only in his presence. This is the eternally great reward, and we would be foolish to settle for anything less. This is the promise of all true believers who will conquer and faithfully endure until the end. So, I say this to challenge you today. Not to scare you, unless you need scaring. Are you persevering today? Are you enduring today? Or are you whining? Slumbering? Thinking of throwing in the towel, giving up. Are you enduring whatever God has opened up or shut down in your life today? Whether that be the pandemic or parenting, dealing with your own parents, money trouble ministry challenges, job loss, an uncertain future, marriage, singleness, sickness, good health, ridicule, rejection, tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Through him who loved us. That's how we conquer. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You've been listening. If you've got ears on the sides of your head, I hope you have been. Because he was speaking to us as part of his churches. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I think the, the beautiful truth overshadowing this entire passage is Jesus' power and sovereignty. Like it's everywhere. His opening and shutting in verse 7, his omniscience and power in verse 8, his victory over enemies in verse 9, his control over tribulation in verse 10, his coming back in power in verse 11, his ability to reward people in verse 12, and his mighty words in verse 13. Like this is who Jesus is. He is Christ and King and God, and he is now challenging us and spurring us on and cheering us on and encouraging us like he doesn't want us to fail or fall short he wants us to conquer it's obvious here he wants us to succeed he wants us to overcome and he has the power to make sure that it happens 
Philippians 3 declares, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. We will be like him. And our honor, our glory is intrinsically tied to him, connected to his own, which has already happened. It's guaranteed. Just listen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He is able, and because he loves us, he will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you indeed be glorified in our lives? As we have heard, so help us respond. Lord, I pray that you would continue to speak this word to us, encourage us, for we are weak and tired and beaten down and discouraged. Get our eyes back on you. For this is sure and this is true and we know, we believe. Would you now use us as well to proclaim this, to see the open doors, the opportunities before us that we have to show others your open door. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.